Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the latest on Minlars at the state capitol, an update on the opioid crisis in Minnesota, and Minnesota's enormously popular gold medal winning curling team. But first... Today I announce that the Hennepin County Attorney's Office has filed charges of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter against Minneapolis Police Officer Mohamed Noor in the shooting death of Justine Damon Ruschek. Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman earlier this week making the announcement that some had criticized was overdue. Freeman said the investigation was thorough and gives a nearly second-by-second account of what happened on that night last July 15th. According to the complaint... Officer Neuer's partner, Officer Matthew Harity, was driving the squad car that night. Harity said that just five or ten seconds after Neuer entered Code 4, Harity heard a voice, heard a thump somewhere back behind him on the squad car, and caught a glimpse of a person's head and shoulders outside his driver's side door. Harity was unable to say what the noise was, how loud it was, what the person's voice sounded like, or what the person said. Harity characterized the voice as a muffled voice or whisper. Harity said he could not see whether the person was a man or a woman, an adult or a child. Importantly, he could not see the person's hands and estimated the person was at least two feet away from him. Harity saw no weapons. However, Harity claimed he was startled, took his gun out of its holster, and held it against his ribcage, pointing downward. Harity said from the driver's seat, he had a better vantage point to determine a threat on his side of the car than Officer Neuer did in the passenger's side. Officer Harity said he then heard a sound he described like a light bulb dropping onto the floor and saw a flash. Harity checked to make sure that he was not shot, then looked to his right and saw Officer Neuer's right hand extend across him towards Officer Harity's open window. Officer Harity then looked out his window and saw a woman. Ms. Damon Rushek had put her hands on the wound on her left side of her abdomen and said, I'm dying or I'm dead. Officer Harity then could see both of her hands, believe there was no threat, and got out of the car. Ms. Damon Ruschek was far enough away from the car that Officer Harity was able to open his door and get out. Officer Neuer came around from the passenger side, and Officer Harity told him to holster his gun and turn on his body camera. One minute and ten seconds after getting out of the car, the officers began CPR. Freeman said the charging decision was his and his alone, but he explained why he felt compelled to use a grand jury as part of his investigation of the killing. Much has been written and said about my use of the grand jury after announcing almost exactly two years ago that I would no longer use the grand jury in deciding officer-involved shootings. I said at the time that because of the secrecy in the grand jury deliberations, The people of the county were unable to know what went into a decision, and the lack of transparency was simply not acceptable. Nor did county residents have someone to hold accountable for the grand jury decisions. I still believe that. 
let me be clear. The decision to charge Officer Neuers is my decision and mine alone. Many officers cooperated and came forward when we asked, but some did not. When we did not receive the cooperation we and the citizens of Hennepin County expect from the police officers to do their duty and voluntarily report what they saw and did at the scene of the shooting or in the training of the officers, it left us no other choice than to use the investigative powers of the grand jury. Ultimately, Freeman says the charging decision he made based on the evidence comes down to this. In the short time between when Ms. Damon Ruschek approached the squad car and the time that Officer Neuer fired the fatal shot, there is no evidence that Officer Neuer encountered a threat, appreciated a threat, investigated a threat, or confirmed a threat that justified his decision to use deadly force. Instead, Officer Neuer recklessly and intentionally fired his handgun from the passenger seat in disregard for human life. In the aftermath of Freeman's announcement, a neighbor of Justine Damon had this to say to reporters. We are relieved that her killer is being prosecuted and hope for a swift trial that is respectful to Justine and her loved ones. Police need to be held accountable for their actions that harm individuals and damage communities, just as any one of us would be held accountable. Justine deserves justice. And Jelani Hussein with the Council on American-Islamic Relations also says he hopes for justice for Damon and says police need to be held accountable for their actions, but he adds We recognize that Officer uh, Noor, being Muslim, being Somali, may have had actually something to do with how these charges are being brought up. Noor's attorney says his client quote, acted consistent with established departmental policy and should not have been charged with any crime. The Damon family, in a written statement, called the charges one step toward justice. They acknowledge no charges could bring Justine back. As of airtime for this program, a trial date for former officer Noor had not been set. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. This was the week the legislature granted Governor Dayton's request for $10 million additional dollars to continue repairs on the state's vehicle registration system, MinLARS, which has been plagued with problems ever since it was rolled out. MNN's Bill Werner is here with a recap. Well, Scott, as happens fairly often here at the Capitol, the House and Senate started out in quite different places on this issue. The Senate bill appropriated the $10 million that Governor Dayton asked for, but with conditions. An oversight panel would review progress on fixing Minlars every three months and could delay or withhold funding if benchmarks were not met. The bill's author, Hutchinson Senator Scott Newman, told his colleagues, I think that at this stage of the proceedings, this is the best shot that we have at moving forward with resolving the Minlars issue. Minneapolis Senator Scott Dibble, the lead Democrat on the issue. While not pretty, um, this whole Minlars discussion, of course, isn't pretty. I, I think it is workable. The Minnesota House, meanwhile, passed a bill in clear defiance of Governor Mark Dayton's warning. Instead of an appropriation, Dayton would have to find the $10 million he requested by trimming other state agency budgets. I will veto that measure if it's in the bill. 
I'll veto the bill, and then we'll, and then we'll be done. House Republican leaders say taxpayers should not have to pick up the cost of fixing a problem that Dayton admitted is his responsibility. The governor responded. I'm not going to pay it for it myself. I'm not going to cannibalize, say, other agencies who have no culpability whatsoever in this. I'm not going to bring this up again and again. I'm not going to see this go on for another two months. They're batting this around and getting as much publicity as they can and making all the state government look as bad as they can for a political contrivance. You know, Minlar's, has, it is what it is and it hasn't been what it hasn't been. And I've said that. I've taken responsibility for it. Now we want to fix it. Now we have a plan. Either do it or don't. I just remind everyone that this program was virtually guaranteed to be in working order last July. They gave us no indication that they needed more funds. In fact, we were swimming along nicely, uh, waiting for them to get this program fixed with the funds that they had in hand, when suddenly they came to us on the 31st of January saying they needed $43 million more. That's Hanscom Republican Paul Torkelson. North Mankato Democrat Clark Johnson told his GOP colleagues. You're saying to Minnesotans, we are choosing not to compromise. We're going to keep up the fight. We're going to keep up the delay. And we're going to kind of seek revenge in somehow over mistakes done yesterday. The Republican-controlled House and Senate both said no to the governor's request for a $2 technology fee for transactions on the Minlarge system. Republican Sarah Anderson from Plymouth. This is not the right approach to do. Making the people that have been suffering for these last so many months pay an additional fee on top of already an egregious amount of money that has been put into this. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka echoed. Anytime you're looking at any new tax right now, I think you're going to have strong opposition. The governor responded. This is an election year. So now any funding to improve minerals comes out of the general fund rather than a fee, but, you know, so be it. With the House and Senate both having passed their bills, Point people from both chambers went into negotiations as South St. Paul Democrat Rick Hansen warned. Time is marching on. We're moving towards the end of the month. We know what the consequences are of these daily and then now weekly delays. Representative Hansen, you've uh, said over and over how we need to move as quickly as possible. This issue has been uh, discussed in great detail in both bodies and we will do our conference committee work just as fast as we can. By Thursday morning, the two sides had an agreement. Lawmakers would oversee progress of repairs to Midlars, and the governor would not have to get the $10 million by trimming state agency budgets. Republican Representative Torkelson from Hanska not happy, saying he's heard from plenty of people impacted by Midlars' failures. And virtually all of them have said to me, don't give them another nickel. Don't throw good money after bad. We're kind of flying in the face of that with this work today. The compromise bill passed the Minnesota Senate on a strong vote. Minneapolis Democrat Scott Dibble. Hopefully by this time next year, Minlars will be humming along and uh, working really, really well as, as we had hoped uh, years ago. A different view from Elbow Lake Republican Tory Westrom. I want to highlight this mess because it is a mess. And as we say on the farm, you stepped in it. I acknowledge that this is far from over, but I truly believe it is a step and a first step in the right direction. Hutchinson, Republican Scott Newman. The House passed the bill later on in the day, also on a strong vote, something Democrats said should have happened weeks earlier. There is no excuse for it being March 22nd 
when we convene on February 20th for us to finally get this work done. House Democratic Minority Leader Melissa Hortman. But this week's vote likely does not take the issue off lawmakers' plate, as Representative Torkelson alluded to in his closing remarks. Original request, of course, was for $43 million. Uh, this is only $10 million. So, yes, we will have some more work to do to evaluate that request and see if there's some way that we should or could address it. It's taken us some time to get this work done in the, in the legislature, but it's taken minute, 10 years, and they're not done yet. Uh, this is unconscionable. Uh, we need better performance. Uh, this bill includes a lot of oversight, uh, oversight that apparently is needed so that they can actually get their work done. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, members. Uh, this isn't the last time you're going to hear Minlars. Representative Paul Torkelson from Hanska. Issues still remaining go beyond mere funding to fix Minlars and presumably enhance its functions at some point. There's also talk at the legislature about compensating deputy registrars for additional costs they incurred because of problems with Minlars. And some lawmakers say there should be what could be termed amnesty for motorists who received citations because license plates or tabs were not issued promptly. And finally, Scott, we will see how much traction Republicans get with this issue in the upcoming elections. Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. This week, President Trump outlined his plan to fight the opioid epidemic plaguing our state and country. MNN's Tasha Radel gets reaction from a Minnesota drug expert. But first, here's what President Trump had to say earlier this week. We will not rest until the end. And I will tell you, this scourge of drug addiction in America will stop. President Donald Trump laying out his new opioid strategy in New Hampshire this week. Trump noted that families across the U.S. are dealing with terrible hardships because of opioid abuse. Joining me to break down the president's plan is state drug expert Carol Falkowski, who is also head of Drug Abuse Dialogues. Welcome, Carol. Let's dive right into the president's plan. Your thoughts. The president came up with his plan on opioids, and it included the three historic prongs of drug policy in this country, which are education to stop the demand, uh, interdiction and law enforcement to stop the supply, and then to expand evidence-based treatment. So in that sense, it's the traditional element uh, that we have. Uh, he also called for the death penalty for drug dealers, uh, which I'm hoping is just a... Uh, you know, is a, a typical inflammatory tough guy talk. I, 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 there's no really evidence that that's an effective deterrent, uh, although it is used in the Philippines where he's been looking uh, and spending a lot of time and, and energy and studying how they do it. So who knows about that. But I think uh, you just can't rely on the criminal justice system uh, no matter how harsh the penalties to effectively address and solve uh, the public health problem. So uh, the, to the extent that uh, his plan talks about, you know, education and prevention, that is great. Uh, ed prevention always seems to get lost in the mix. Uh, we need to keep up the efforts for interdiction and stopping the supply of drugs. And 
we need to expand evidence-based treatment. He called for $6 billion uh, to put into treatment, and that really uh, has been shown to be very effective. Uh, with opioid addiction, there is medication-based treatment, and even though that is the gold standard in terms of effectiveness, it's still not widely used. Um, and so we need to reverse that situation so people start having more treatment successes immediately when they need it as opposed to repeated treatment failures. Um, it's also, it was also not mentioned uh, that we need to re-educate doctors, especially here in Minnesota. We need to keep our eye on the ball and realize that the goal is to uh, restore the use of opioids to the situations in which they were intended to be used, which is acute post-surgical pain. The idea is not to eliminate the use of opioid pain relievers. My goodness, if, if you've ever had surgery, uh, you appreciate that you live in a day and age where there is something that can temporarily block uh, acute post-surgical pain. Um, so the goal is really to get it back to being used just for that and use different methods to treat long-term chronic pain. That's how we got into this mess, was thinking that it could be used for long-term chronic pain, and that is how people uh, have come to become addicted. Um, and we also, another thing that mentioned is that we need to integrate addiction into primary care. You know, it's a, addiction is a chronic disease with behavioral components where you have to change your behavior to get better. And just like diabetes or high blood pressure or asthma, uh, you need to have the tools at the primary care doctor's offices to identify it. Well, doctors still don't get a lot of education on addiction, and they don't screen for it, and they don't typically ask people about their drinking and drugging behavior. And so for a lot of folks, uh, it goes undiagnosed, and, and we need to put equal attention on that as well. And you know, Carol, I know that you do a number of um, talks around the, the state and the country, and you know, it, it doesn't seem to me that this opioid epidemic is going away anytime soon. Is that your feeling also? Yeah, as with other uh, complicated social problems that reach the criminal justice system, the health system, the uh, child protection system, I mean, it is a far reach uh, of the opioid crisis, and because of that, uh, turning it around requires multiple efforts on all those different fronts. Thanks again to my guest, Carol Falkowski, head of Drug Abuse Dialogues. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return in a moment. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Since winning a gold medal last month in the South Korea Olympics, the Minnesota-based USA Olympic curling team has been going non-stop at various promotional events all over the country. The team consists of Minnesotans John Schuster, Tyler George, John Landsteiner, and Joe Polo. Matt Hamilton is also a team member. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with team captain Schuster in our MNN studios earlier this week, and Schuster says the past six weeks have been a whirlwind. We won... You win a gold, and I think instantly you're thinking about team and family and that kind of thing, and then um, instantly you're being pulled in a thousand directions and being offered amazing opportunities. And I mean, it's uh, and you try to take as many as you can and and have some fun with it. And 
you know, try to, you know, like for us, we're, we're really just trying to introduce curling to, to more audiences and, and just, just spread our game. Cause our game is awesome people and, uh, and it's growing rapidly in our country and, and hopefully we can you know, help that growth. I want to ask you about curling in a second. I also, though, in those three weeks, want to ask you, what are some of the coolest things you've been able to do as a team and, and some of these appearances? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, the the Tonight Show and ringing the bell to open up Wall Street, seriously? Like, uh, and then, I mean, throwing the rock on, on an NHL sheet, which is not, I mean, ideal because there's no pebble. It's way different. Um, and doing that, throwing out that puck at that outdoor game was, I mean, I put that up there with, like walking in opening ceremonies of the Olympics because it was people were losing their minds. But even last night at the Wolves game, like as soon as somebody as as soon as the first people realized, like I can't tell you how fast by the time I got out to the court, got my foot onto the court, the entire place was on their feet. Just, just so much fun. I, I just. It's just been so much fun. Could you get a sense of how much the state here back home was pulling for you guys while you were, and obviously while you're out there, you know, uh, doing the, the competition, maybe not, but uh, did you get a sense uh, as you were heading in how much it meant to people here? Yeah, but I, I think we think it's statewide, but when we were out on the East Coast, it was not statewide. Like, I, I think, you know, after the Capitals game experience, that we could go anywhere in our country and have the same, like, people have... I can't tell you how many people have told us I was up at 3.30 in the morning, 4.30, depending where they are in the country. Like, I watched, like, that shot and that 5 and 8. Like, the number of people that watched it live, I think, to us is probably the thing that blows our minds the most because we know it was, like, 3.30 in the morning here, 4.30 in the morning on the East Coast. Just crazy. That five-point toss, was it in the seventh round or eighth, eighth, or eighth round? Eighth round, yeah. Talk me through it. Yeah, no, it's, it, was, it was really uh, – it's stuff that you see happen in curling where, you know, a team is – you know, we're tied up playing the eighth end and and a team kind of they threw a high guard and a tight guard which is curling lingo but um and so they're they're gambling and and as we kept on tapping their rocks out and kind of keeping ours around and and you could see it building and just you know ty and i looked at each other like we just need one one crack and we actually had three kind of half cracks at it but it was they weren't really they were very very difficult like cracks we again kept getting one rock out and keeping our shooters around and uh and now when when his last rock stopped, I was like, this is a nose hit. This is as simple as they come. It's a double takeout, and it's in this stage. But we we just all embraced that entire end in the moment and, and have been enjoying the crap out of it since then. And when that happened, you had to know that at that point, it's just a couple of ends left and yeah, you're the anthem, right? Right, yeah. And, I mean, we all knew, both teams knew that the game was over, but those guys needed to uh, play off another end so they could, like, tamper their emotions a little bit kind of thing. So they ended up playing one more end, got two, and then oh, we'll play the next end. And they didn't even they didn't even let us throw our last shot to end it. They just conceded. So it was kind of a very interesting ending there. <laughs> uh, what was it like being on the podium when the anthem played? You know, I was expecting it to be a lot more emotional personally. But for me, I think when I finally made the turn in that week, I actually kind of detached emotional a bit and kind of really thought of more of it like business. So when I was up there, it was a extremely proud moment. And maybe, maybe I was using... You know, singing the anthem is a crutch to not be bawling my eyes out. But uh, it was just just one of those extremely proud moments, proud of our team, proud of the all the people that we were there with. And, you know, looking at the flag and glancing over my wife and kids and my parents, um, for me, was just incredibly special. And I'm um, ex- extremely proud that I got to share that with a bunch of people. In an individual sport, you'd be up on the podium and seeing your flag and your friends and stuff. But being on, a, like, a small team like we have is just 
I equate it to like a swimming relay team that, you know, five guys or four guys come together to do one special thing. And I think, you know, we got to do that as a, as a foursome. It was pretty cool. Um, you mentioned the game of curling. It's obviously been a huge part of your life from the time you were basically born. You were born into it, so to speak. Um, how much, uh, first of all, has this helped? I mean, the, the spike and the interest and uh, everything else with, with the game. Oh, I started in 97, so uh, I've only kind of been around for the Olympic era, but it's it's been fun seeing our game growing. And, I mean, the friends that you make in curling worldwide, I, I'm serious, like, you meet a curler and they're essentially your friend, and and that's the way that just the camaraderie that goes with our sport, and it's just so much fun to to have that and share that. And last thing for you, it, the, the the one I guess inhibitor is that it's hard. I mean, you need to find a specific spot. I mean, although you could buy some stones, I suppose, and go oh, out they're on, the, on the ice, but they're expensive. But to you know, go out in a pond or something. But to get a, a, an official kind of a you know place to go play, you have to kind of track it down. But it's amazing. I've talked to a handful of people who, yeah, I went out to the Lakeville Curling Club just because I wanted to see what it was like, or I went to uh, Blaine and, and played a little bit. I, I mean, that has to warm your heart a little bit to hear that too. Just like old guys, and instead of golfing, we're going to go curling absolutely and i think I, I actually think the biggest spread that we've seen in the in the best thing for our state is there used to be one curling club in the twin cities with dedicated ice and that was saint paul and they've been around forever and there was always a long waiting list and now there's actually five full-time facilities down here so if people want to play like there's a spot for you to play in the twin cities and same with the rest of the state of minnesota like duluth like we're close to capacity but there's still room for people to play you know you're up on the range up in two arbors like all the way up and through the state there's there's room for people to come and try our sport and, and become curlers everywhere across the state of Minnesota. And it, it's really one of those sports that, for me, from the time I threw a, for my first rock, I knew it was going to be something I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. That's gold medal winner John Schuster and MN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.